We'll open your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Well, a few weeks ago, everything was normal. I know that's hard to imagine right now. Uh, as we're in, I'm in standing in the middle of a virtually empty sanctuary, quite literally preaching to the choir at this moment. And yet, here we are, and we're looking back and we're going, man, two weeks ago, everything was normal. Three weeks ago, everything was, was pretty normal. We were starting to hear news, and now you can't escape the news of the coronavirus. It has grabbed our attention in every capacity. We are now focused. No matter what you do, you open news apps, you, you open any other app, and you've got all of these notifications about what's happening with the coronavirus and, and the cotton-picking emails that you get from every business under the sun telling you what they're doing about the coronavirus. Our attention has been seized by this event. There's no escaping it. And what's odd, I think, is the first time ever in my entire life, seven billion people around the planet seem to all be focused on the same issue, coronavirus. In our passage this morning, we see one man whose attention is likewise seized by the God of the universe. Isaiah gets a vision of God. And he's captivated. Let's read our passage, Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for this text that we've just read, that You would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we may hear and see and apply the Word to our lives. We can only do this by the power of your Spirit, and we pray for its help right now. In Jesus' name, amen. In our passage this morning, God's people are in turbulent times. They, 
Think with me about the context that the people find themselves in at this moment. The kingdom of the Jews is split into two. We have the common term now for all of Israel as a united people. And so we tend to call all Israel a united front, just one country. But shortly following Solomon's reign, which is where we're at now, the former nation of Israel is divided into two distinct groups. We have ten tribes that have come together to make up the kingdom of Israel in the north. And we have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that make up the kingdom of Judah in the south. And so the kingdom in the south is considered the only legitimate kingdom. And so the nation of Jews at this moment in our text could not be more divided. On top of that, the division that exists within the nation is a threat because of foreign enemies that are seeking to invade. So in the east, at this moment, you've got the Assyrians breathing down the necks of the Israelites and the Judahites and threatening to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now the Assyrians, before the Babylonians came along, the Assyrians were swift, they were powerful, they had fierce fighters, and they were mowing down nation after nation, left and right. In fact... Within 20 years of the death of Uzziah, the Assyrians are going to march into the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and haul off the Jews into slavery. This is going to leave the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, as the only Jewish presence really to speak of in the region. And so all that is to say, the book of Isaiah is written during a a long period of political turmoil, and it begins with the death of King Uzziah. Now, Israel, uh, Isaiah is, has the unenviable task of being a prophet to Judah, to the southern kingdom, which is the kingdom over which Uzziah reigns. And he's the prophet to this kingdom. And in this text, he's receiving his commissioning as a prophet. Many even think that this text is chronologically the first part of before, any, before chapter 1 of Isaiah, but regardless of all that, he's receiving his commissioning as a prophet, and so he's going to be the messenger of God. At the end of this, he's going to be sent out as the messenger and given his message, and the rest of the book of Isaiah contains the message that he's been commissioned by God to give to the people around him. And so here in this passage, the prophet Isaiah encounters a vision of uh, uh, encounters God in a vision. And God is going to get his attention in such a way that it fundamentally changes the prophet from the inside out. But as we look at this text, I want you to think personally. In the midst of this social distancing that we're now experiencing, that we're now forced to undergo, does God have your attention in the way that he has Isaiah? We can even ask the question more broadly, does God have the attention of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Or perhaps you're watching from some other church, whatever church you go to, does God have the attention of His people in His church? Or are we coming to church for other reasons? When we look at this passage this morning, Isaiah tells us about his encounter with God, and the camera, if you will, is going to shift Uh, Three different times, be focused on three different things, which are going to be our three points this morning. First, I want us to see that God's rule is unfazed by earthly chaos. 
God's rule is unfazed by earthly chaos. Look at what he says in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, it might help for you to take your mind away from the American system of governments, which is the governance, which is the only system that you or I really have much experience with. If we don't like a president, let's say, we can vote them out in four years, or at worst, we're left with eight years of a president's term in office. But the point being, even if we don't like his successor that comes along after him, eight years is all we really have to live with. That's not so if you're living under a king. Kings might rule for 40 years. They might be good or they might be terrible. They might be somewhere in the middle. But regardless, you pretty much have to live with whatever you get. There's no changing, really. And at some point in the king's reign, the people begin to follow in line with what the king is doing. They begin to follow under his leadership. They begin to adapt to his style. In some cases in Israel's history, he leads them off into idolatry. In some cases, he leads them to worship the Lord. But regardless, they begin to follow the king. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom, so to speak. They get comfortable with his way of governing. So when a king dies, The kingdom tends to be thrown into turmoil. Now, Uzziah is a bit of a different animal, so to speak. He also went by the name Azariah, so you'll see that pop up sometimes in the Old Testament. But he had been struck by the Lord with leprosy. And for some time, he'd been ill. And so we estimate about 10 years, his son, Jotham, had been co-reigning with him and would eventually now, and now in our passage, be taking on full control of the throne. So the nation of Israel not only is divided into two nations, but it also has this now change of a king. So we have the death of the king and the complete transfer of power over to his son. And let's not forget, there is a bloodthirsty horde out to the east that's mowing down countries left and right, the Assyrians. (coughs) This wasn't lost on Isaiah. In fact, he states the very first verse this way for a reason. In the year that the earthly king died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Now if you get the image here, We're immediately confronted with this. One king vacates the throne. Another king occupies the throne. It's a not-so-subtle reassurance to an entire nation in turmoil that just lost their king. Our earthly king may be dead, but behold, the king eternal sits on the throne. From the end of verse 1 through verse 3, is a snapshot of just how glorious this king is. He says he saw him high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the Jews understood God's throne to be in the heavens and his footstool to be in the Holy of Holies, more specifically on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so this is the reason that Isaiah talks about the train of his, his robe, the hem of his garment filling the temple. God is sitting exalted high on the throne and the train of His robe is filling the temple. And the rest of the picture here is describing the majesty of the Lord that Isaiah sees. Let's look at what he describes here in this passage. The Lord is sitting upon the throne and there are seraphim above Him, circled around Him. 
So get that image of the chubby flying baby that you might be thinking of out of your mind. Just send that out of your mind. That's not what we're seeing here. Seraphim literally means burning ones. These are bright, majestic, lit on fire angels that are huge in appearance. Flying angels with voices like jet engines that we're going to see in just a moment. And these angels are so close to the throne that they're shielding their face and their feet with two wings respectively, while they fly with two other wings. The picture here would be like approaching the face of the sun. How close can you actually get to the sun before you have to shield your eyes? Or even smaller, a campfire. Can you imagine even getting really close to a campfire before you have to shield your face from its radiance? Now imagine the God of the universe. These angels encircled around Him. And they're announcing the king that they're surrounding. And this repetitive anthem is proclaiming his holiness. Holy, 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 they say. Holy is a way to describe uh, perfection that has no limit. In a similar way, we use the word infinite to describe time or space or number that has no limit. So imagine someone describing the size of something as infinite, infinite, infinite. The magnitude of God's holiness shatters the limits of human, or it seems even angelic communication. We don't have words bigger than holy, words bigger than infinite. So all we can do is repeat them so that we come even closer to describing the God sitting on His throne. Conveying the vision this way is Isaiah's way of making a very important point. God is on the throne. King Uzziah ruled for a few years and then he vanished like a vapor. Are you worried? Judah, do you tremble at the sight of your adversaries? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high on a throne, high and lifted up, the train of His robe filling the temple. Do you know who your king is? Nation of Judah. Who is it or what is it that has your attention? Is it the king that just died that has your attention? Is it the armies in the east that have your attention? Perhaps it's the threat of famine or plague. I got a glimpse of the king. Of him on his throne. And let me tell you, he didn't seem worried. His rule is unfazed by earthly chaos. Second thing that I want you to see is that our sin is wrecked by God's holiness. Our sin is wrecked by God's holiness. Uh, This is where things get really interesting in the passage. The scene shifts. We're no longer focused on God sitting on the throne. In fact, look at what happens in verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I don't know if you've ever experienced an earthquake or anything that just was something so loud that it, it shook your very chest, vibrated your very chest, felt your knees felt wobbly, but it's, it's absolutely terrifying. There's nothing like it. So the sound of the seraphim's voices shake the foundations of the threshold, and then the temple fills with smoke. So Isaiah can no longer see this image of the Lord that he was looking at then. He can no longer look upon the Lord anymore. The smoke is covering it all up. 
So Isaiah is experiencing his own limitations. He's not allowed to enter into the divine presence. He's not allowed to come close to God. In fact, he's probably standing in the threshold there, literally the doorpost of the threshold, grabbing them because he's shaking so much so that he might have something to hold on to. And then Isaiah tells us in verse 5, Woe is me, for I'm lost. Some of you have lost there in the ESV. Some of you may have undone in your translation. But it's basically another way of saying, I'm dead. Isaiah is looking at the Lord, smoke fills. He knows that he can't now go into the presence of the Lord. And he's saying, I am a dead man. I'm, I, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm dead. Because in the presence of, of a holiness of God, his sin is immediately exposed. Look at what he says. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Lord of hosts. He immediately realizes the wretchedness of his own sin. But not only the sins that he's committed, but sins that he's tolerated and been around in the society around him. Motir puts it like this. Isaiah adds the fact that he accepted unclean speech in society and made no attempt to separate himself from it as an aggravation of his guilt. Immediately upon God the King getting his attention by revealing himself to Isaiah, the prophet is confronted with the darkness in his own heart, with his own deeds and actions. How difficult it must be to convey the holiness of God in writing. And perhaps the best way to do it is exactly the way Isaiah does here. He describes the effect that seeing God has on him. He begins to confess his sins. Parents, you probably know what this feels like. You may have seen your kids from time to time do this. When they know they've done something wrong and you come walking in the room with that crazy look in your eye like this and you meet their eye and you walk up closer to them, and they, they immediately begin saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yes, I, I'm sorry, don't spank me, don't do whatever, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Now multiply that by a million, and maybe we get close to something like what Isaiah is feeling now here. Can you imagine what could possibly make you adults instantly begin to confess your sins to everyone present out loud? What would that be? This is the God that you and I are gathering around in our living rooms, gathering around our TV screens, our iPads. This is the God that we're gathering around to worship today. But do you notice what sin Isaiah confesses? The people around me have unclean lips. And I'm just like them. The coronavirus has afforded us a, a, a really unique opportunity to see how people respond when they're confronted by their own mortality. When life and death hangs in the balance, we will separate ourselves from everyone we know. 
The doctors on TV, the president, the news, all tells us death is imminent. Get in your houses. Hunker down. And with the threat of death that close to us, we will forsake almost everything in our life and hunker down. But the illusion is that we live, the illusion that we live under is that our death is somehow less imminent any other day of the year. There are roughly 150,000 people that die every single day on this planet. And of those, an estimated 50,000 people per day die of non-age-related causes. Meaning on any given day, you can find a marathon runner who ate nothing but organic free-range chicken and blueberries for his entire life and dropped dead at 32. When a virus breaks out and the threat of death creeps up ever so slightly, we will distance ourselves from jobs, from friends, from our church, from society as a whole. But one day, and you never know when that day will come. It may be 94 or 44. It may be 101 or it may be 21. One day, the funeral bell will toll for you and you will be standing face to face with the very same God Isaiah is now seeing in this passage. And so the question then is, are you taking as much care to distance yourself from indwelling sin now as you are distancing yourself from your neighbors and your family members now? Perhaps I can repurpose Jesus' words in Matthew 10.28 for our time. My words are are unbolded. And do not fear the virus which can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When you get that picture, it's hard to imagine why we're so calloused in our churches today. Why are we so bored? We have more lights and more sound we have better, better music. We have all kinds of things better than we ever had centuries before us. Why do we leave and just move on to the next thing as if the worship of God didn't really happen? As if we didn't really encounter the same God that Isaiah encountered in that temple? How is it that we can just leave These places of worship where we gather together with His body that He bought with His blood and yet walk out as if nothing happened. Is it possible that nothing did happen? Who or what has our attention? I want to ask you, believer, a couple of questions. When you read the Word of God, when you hear it preached, when you sing praises to His name, is God the delight of your soul? Or are you merely reading words on a screen? 
Are you feeling compelled to deal with the sins that you're wrestling with or would you rather not think about it? If we weren't coming to terms, if we aren't in worship, coming to terms, in in reading the Bible, in listening to sermons, and singing praises to His name, if we aren't coming to terms with the sin of our flesh, then I wonder if it's really God that has our attention. Is it God that we're encountering? Because if we can still happily live in our sin, I don't think it is. Sin is wrecked by God's holiness. Third, last, I want you to see atonement has equipped you for action. For those who have been confronted by their sin or may feel some sense of of guilt or remorse, even right now, I have good news. Look at verse 6 with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now this is a real scandal here. We've already seen that that this three times holy God at the beginning of the passage, we've already seen how, how holy and majestic He is. And Isaiah, we've seen, does not deserve forgiveness here. Isaiah truly deserves death right here. And by the way, remember, Isaiah knows it. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I am ruined, he says. Well, Isaiah is standing there before this holy God and recognizing that any self-righteousness that he could have owned beforehand has quickly evaporated. But in this picture, we see God's holiness and justice converge with His mercy and with His grace. God's holiness not only requires purity from Isaiah, and it does require purity from Isaiah, but it not only requires the purity from Isaiah, but through the seraphim and the coal that he brings, God also supplies the purity. The seraphim brings the hot coal from the altar to Isaiah and burns away the impurities of his unclean lips. But for what purpose ultimately in the book does that purification process serve for Isaiah? Why does he do it? I think the answer is in verse 8. God then calls out, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I I am. Send me. He enables Isaiah to go and proclaim. Isaiah isn't welcome to proclaim the message of God with unclean lips. And so Isaiah experiences a transformation here, supplied by God. Look at the text. He goes from only hearing the sound of the seraphim voices in verse 4. He can't hear God's voice. He can't even see the image of God. He just hears the sound of the seraphim voices. And then in verse 5, he pronounces woe on himself. But then, uh, after his sins are atoned for, now who does he hear? He clearly hears the voices and the words of God Himself and is now able to respond to them. Here I am. Send me. Do you see the change? This is a a change in Isaiah's entire position before God. From one of a feeble sinner to bold servant. So Isaiah's atonement equips him for proclaiming God's message to the people. 
Isaiah is cleansed so that he can join God in what he's doing in preaching and proclaiming God's message to the nations, specifically to the nation of Judah. At one point, where he, at the point where his sins are atoned for, he's ready for action. In other words, God did not leave him in his sin. What he required, he supplied by his grace and mercy. But he also didn't cleanse him so that Isaiah might sit still from week to week. God's atonement equipped Isaiah for action. Perhaps you, like Isaiah, in your living room, have been confronted by your sin, having realized that your soul would be in serious jeopardy should your life come to an end right now. Friend, I have good news for you. The atonement that God requires for you to stand in judgment before Him. He has also supplied for you in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, who 2,000 years ago lived a perfect and holy life as only God could. He could stand before God, unlike Isaiah, stand before God with a completely clear conscience. And instead of receiving His just rewards, rewards that He rightfully earned, He laid down His life and faced the full force of God's wrath on the cross. Why would He face God's wrath? Why would He do that? Why would He go to the cross and face God's wrath? God didn't have any wrath for Him. He had a clear conscience. That was the wrath reserved for you. That was put on him. It was God's wrath stored up for you. And he did it to atone for your sins once and for all. And he offers to you salvation by the same grace that he gave Isaiah through faith. Trusting in Christ for salvation. Confessing your sins to him. Turning from them. Living every day in repentance and faith in the atoning work of Christ the Savior. How is it that we as Christians can live during this time in the desert? Isolated from our extended families, isolated from our friends, isolated from our church family, isolated from much of society. How do we live in the desert? First, we come to grips with our own sin. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are already declared righteous before God. But I don't think anybody that's a Christian feels as though they are righteous before God. You are already legally declared righteous. That's justification. You are justified before God. You are legally declared righteous before God, but you are not yet perfect in this life. Jesus has atoned for our sins, but we are not yet perfect. Perfect, And because the Holy Spirit dwells within us as Christians, we are constantly in the presence of His holiness wherever we go. That's why the place that we're in right now is not a sanctuary. We are the church. We are His body. Wherever we are, there the presence of God is within us. And so dwelling in His holiness constantly, we are constantly having to come to grips with our own sinful nature. 
We are constantly repenting of the sinful desires of the flesh. So in many ways, we are in the same place as Isaiah, even though we're on this side of the cross. We're constantly in need of confession and repentance of indwelling sin that are incompatible with our faith. In the pews of our churches every Sunday across America, we have millions of Christians who will come in, who will sit down, they'll sing songs, they'll hear somebody talk, they'll listen to some prayers, they'll visit with some people, and then they'll leave. And they'll never be asked to confront the sins that they currently wrestle with. Folks, this has to call into question whether we're actually approaching God in worship at all. If instead, in our worship, we're seized in thought about the holiness of God, don't you think it would compel us to confess our sins to Him and turn away from them just like Isaiah did? If that's really who we're encountering when we worship God, don't you think it should compel us to confess our sins to one another, to the Lord, and turn from them the same way Isaiah did? Don't you think it would lead to a less casual attitude in worship? Don't you think it would lead to us not looking to have a fun experience in here? Don't you think it would do away with the question, why is everyone so serious? Don't you think there would be a fire lit under us? I fear the American church is far removed from another great awakening because it seems that we keep waiting on God to light a fire in everyone else's heart. We listen to sermons and we think of the people in our lives that could really benefit from hearing this sermon. But what about you? What about you? What sins in your heart is the Lord confronting with His Word? Friends, revival is when each one of us is so captivated by a glorious God that we despise the darkness in our own hearts. But when we say, man, I really wish the Lord would bring revival in this country, I think what we mean is the Lord needs to do something about those people over there. It's not holiness to despise the darkness in someone else's heart. That's self-righteousness. Instead, as I reflect more upon the goodness and holiness of God, the sin in my own heart begins to be magnified as it was with Isaiah. But what is troubling is that there seems to be an attitude that revival will really break out in our land when the Lord reveals himself to that pagan group. But that's not how it works. Revival happens when God in love, crushes his own people with the weight of his holiness. Jonathan Edwards was one of the central preachers during the First Great Awakening in the American colonies in the 1730s and 40s. And it was about a, a decade of uh, intense spiritual fervor during this time, and people were coming to Christ in droves, relatively speaking, relative to the population. 
Jonathan Edwards was reflecting back on this time, and he said this, and I think it's really important for us to pay really close attention to his words. Reflecting back on the Great Awakening, he said this, In the month of May, 1741, a sermon was preached to a company at a private house. Near the conclusion of the sermon, one or two persons were so greatly affected with a sense of the greatness and glory of divine things and the infinite importance of the things of eternity that they were not able to conceal it. The affection of their minds overcoming their strength and having very visible effect on their bodies. Many others at the same time were overcome with distress about their sinful and miserable state and condition. So that the whole room was full of nothing but outcries, faintings, and such like. And after, after great convictions and humblings and agonizings with God, they had Christ discovered to them anew as an all-sufficient Savior and in the glories of His grace and in a far more clear manner than before. It was a stirring amongst the people during the great awakenings of sins they had lived with and tolerated. But it didn't start with that pagan group over there. It didn't start with my spouse. It didn't start with my friends. It started with me. It started with me hearing the preaching and coming to grips with my own sin because God now has my attention. What sins currently beset you? Are you resisting them? Or are you giving in to them? Does Sunday morning worship or time you spend reading the Word cause you to confess your sins to the Lord? Or is someone else always the problem? Lord, I really wish you would change his heart. I really wish you would change that person over there. Conform them to your Word. Let's come to grips with our own sin. What do we do during this time, during the desert, living in the desert? Second, we proclaim the gospel to those around us. Isaiah isn't touched with the coal only to turn around and go back home and you haven't been redeemed so that you can sit on your couch or on the sidelines while missionaries out there share the gospel. You have been redeemed to worship God and to join God on His mission. And you have been redeemed not only to give money to missions, you have been redeemed to take part in mission. You have been redeemed to tell the person in the cubicle next to you about the good news of the saving power of Christ. There are lots of reasons why we don't share the gospel, I think. Fear of what people think, well, might think of us. Fear of what we don't know, the right answer. We don't know the right answers, and so we, we get really timid and fearful about not sharing the gospel. Fear, fearful that, that someone might reject us. But then we have to ask, why do we share the gospel? Why would we share the gospel? Well, I don't think that we share the gospel because we know all the right answers. And I don't think we share the gospel because we feel like it's the best way to win friends and influence people. It's clearly not that. 
I think the desire to share the gospel comes when we're excited about the news that we've got to share because a holy God has our attention by what He has done for us in Christ and we cannot keep quiet about it. We have to tell somebody. Do you see yet in this coronavirus crisis that we're living in how people really feel when they come face to face with their own mortality? Do you really see that now? Don't listen to the TV that tells you that people don't want to believe in a so-called fairy tale of the Bible. People's hearts are not open to that closed-minded way of thinking. That's all you see on TV. That's all you see in the news. That's all people are going to tell you is they don't want any of that. But what we see now is that when people come face to face with their own mortality, they find salvation in toilet paper. That's who they look for hope in, in the grocery stores. This is a moment where you can and should ask your neighbor, your friends, your family members, what do you think happens when you die? The entire world is looking for hope. And Christians, we have the answer. Now is as good a time as any to speak. Don't hesitate. Speak. God didn't cleanse you from sin so you could sit on your couch. But it really comes down to who or what has your attention. Because see, if God has your attention, then you, Christian, will battle sin and temptation daily and you will boldly proclaim the gospel to those around you. You battling your own sin, then proclaiming the gospel, the good news that you found in Jesus Christ to the people around you. Now you're seeing revival happen first in your own heart, then in the people seeing that change in you and coming to know Christ. You will see this grand revitalization in our country. But if God does not have the attention of his church, then these empty pews that are around me right now are a foretaste of what is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we stand here in this empty place, we have no idea We have no way of looking at faces, of gauging responses. We have no way of seeing the effect that your word has on the outward countenance of a person. We we, we can't see it. We are literally flying blind. And so I pray, Lord, your word is powerful. It's transcendent. And it has reached far, much further than we could ever imagine. And so I pray that it would go as far as you want it to go. Climb into as many hearts as you want it to climb into. That you would invade your people 
with a sense of your holiness. And that our earnest desire would be to live holy and consecrated lives to you. That you would fill us with such joy that other people could see it on our faces. And in the midst of the blackness of the culture that we're experiencing right now, at this very moment, your people would shine like stars in the universe. Give us a boldness. Give us a conviction. Give us the hope of the gospel buried deep down in our hearts in an unmovable position and invading every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.